The Holy Spirit. We just read, Mark just read for us out of the Lexham Bible um, from the Faith Life app, out of Romans chapter 8. And if there's any Bible passage that deals explicitly with the phrase, with regard to Christians being spirit-filled, it's right here in Romans chapter 8. And for the sake of emphasis, I would like to reread those verses so that we get this beginning of this Bible study and the nuance of what we're trying to, to read and study about in the auditorium class. Because I know a number of you aren't here for the auditorium class because you're teaching downstairs or you're not able to make it or, hey, by the way, if you can't make it, come. It's a great study. Uh, apparently less than 10% uh, that was in this class has ever had a quarter-long Bible study on the Holy Spirit. So very, very few. And it's just mind-blowing. And as I mentioned, I'm part of the problem. And I, I want to be part of the solution to that. So in, in Romans chapter 8, again, as was read for us, we're going to read again verse 9 through 11. It says, You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if the Spirit of God dwells in you. Let that sink in for a minute. If you're in Christ, then the Spirit dwells in you. Then he says, now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. In other words, if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you don't belong to Christ. That's what he's saying. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him, of Christ, of God, who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. I don't know how many times he can say it explicitly enough, but He dwells in you. And so we're talking about being Spirit-filled and and we're looking at what does this really look like? And as was mentioned this morning, the scriptures have to be that which shows us what this looks like. I mentioned in our Bible study this morning that if you look at these phrases, you do your search, and it'll vary just a little bit because of translations. But if you look at the phrase Holy Spirit, or Spirit of God, or Spirit of the Lord, or Spirit of Jehovah, you will find that it is stated approximately 150 times. That's not including other passages that deal with the Holy Spirit that's not in this phrase. That's a whole lot of Bible verses about the Holy Spirit and very little study on the Holy Spirit. And when you look further, you can see as you read scriptures who he is. Not what he is, but who he is. You get to read what he did and this is where I interject and what he does. And that's part of our study that we're looking at. How he works. The gifts that he gives. All kinds of things about the Holy Spirit when we open up and read and not just gloss over as someone had mentioned. It's easy when you read certain passages. I think David and I were talking in between the break about how passages you can read for many, many years and gloss over it. For instance, and I use this as an illustration because it's on my mind. Um, to David during that break I said you know we read Acts chapter 2 and verse 38 and we focus in on repentance and baptism right for the remission of sins and there's a whole other part of that verse that tells us what happens to those who repent and are baptized so we get to read of the Holy Spirit 
but it's easy to gloss over and forget that aspect and focus in, in our teachings, in our studies, on that which we are comfortable with, that which we are familiar with. And so the scriptures often speak of the Holy Spirit, and so should we, but it's an uncomfortable subject. I had put out three surveys at the beginning of this Bible class. And I was asking, basically, have you ever had a Bible study congregationally or at least from a Bible study at the church building standpoint? Have you ever done one? Four people answered yes. As far as a quarterly study. Not just one study or anything, but a quarterly study. An emphasis. That was less than 10% of those that were in our Bible class. So you combine that which, aside from Bible studies, has been preached on. I went through my personal records I've had no more than four sermons on the Holy Spirit in, well, 15 years of record-keeping of sermons. My bad. That's very little when you consider we're talking about God. We're talking about getting to know who our God is, that we may be in awe over him and what he does for us. So it's very little preached on and studied. In fact, that's the reason why Mike Waters has been asked to come back and to give a series of lessons, if not one long lesson. I don't know what what the intention is yet. Um, Later in the spring or early summer on the Holy Spirit. Very little is preached on him. We've heard others, and I put in others like this, others talk about the Holy Spirit. and And I'll tell you, it's very uncomfortable. When I was in college, And this was before I became a Christian, but I remember my roommate, he went to a charismatic church. In fact, that was the church I worked in before I became a Christian. He went to this charismatic church, and he would come back, and he would talk about the Holy Spirit. And I looked at him like he was weird, and that was before I was a Christian. Like, what are you talking about? And then I would hear of individuals that would say, well, I can speak in tongues. Or read this book. In five steps, you'll learn how to speak in tongues. I'm like, I, yes, you laugh at the irony. I thought the Holy Spirit, boom, and you didn't have a five-step program to learn how to speak in tongues. You were able, And so all these things and our reaction then is to stay clear of those others that talk weird about the Holy Spirit. Right? Because we get uncomfortable. And for a lack of a better term... The Holy Spirit itself, he is not a controversial topic, but we've made him such because of the differences of opinions, because of um, views that we hold dearly to. And so for all these reasons, we're talking about the Holy Spirit being an uncomfortable subject matter, but yet the scriptures are very clear. We just read Romans chapter 8, even if we didn't go into the text itself, and of which we will get into uh, it more this morning, but especially in our Bible study, Being a Christian means you have the Holy Spirit. For whatever that means. For whatever that means, you have the Holy Spirit. If someone says, I'm a Christian, but I don't have the Holy Spirit, then you deny the scriptures that are very explicit that the Holy Spirit dwells in you. Whatever that means, brethren, that's what that means. You do have the Holy Spirit. So if someone says, yeah, we are a church that uh, that belongs to Christ, but we don't have the Holy Spirit. You really need to think through what you just said. We better believe that this is a spirit-filled body of believers because there's, that's the only way you can be. 
a body of believers. Now, what that looks like, and I want to ease any of you that might be thinking, where is Mitch going with this? I'm not talking about, you know, that's, I'm not doing that. That's not what I'm talking about. When I talk about the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, that is not what it is. I hope to show you who he is, what he does. But we're only going to get one small aspect of it this morning. I only want to focus in on this premise. That as the scriptures revealed to us in Romans chapter 8, as well as other passages, that the Holy Spirit dwells within you if you are in Christ. When you get this, there are two significant passages we're going to look at that brings this aspect out. And we'll look at those two for this morning. I want you to open up to that familiar Bible passage that I was talking about earlier, Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. And I want you to really think through this, not from a 21st century vantage point where we have our Bibles in our hands, but I want you to think of this passage as if you were standing there on the day of Pentecost listening to this quote-unquote sermon for the very first time. Okay? If you can have this perspective, it might help you understand what verse 38 is talking about. So, in Acts chapter 2, I'll back up. Acts chapter 1, remember, the Holy um, Spirit was told, I mean, the uh, disciples of the Lord were told, you wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes upon these apostles slash disciples. I mean, you're talking about many, many different languages there, far beyond the 12 apostles. There's a lot of people in Jerusalem coming here for Passover. They've been extending their time and they've stayed for now Pentecost and they start listening in their native tongue to these Galileans who don't know their native tongue but are speaking in their native tongue. That's what's taking place here. And the power was not the fact that they could just speak in different languages without ever having learned them. That was amazing. The power was in the gospel message to save them from their sins. Sometimes we get things backwards. We look at going, I wish I could do that. I wish I could speak some, like, I went into um, Ukraine back in 2004. I wish I could speak Russian and Ukrainian. I don't know if that's even the right word, Ukrainian. But I wish I could have spoken the native tongue. Benny's correcting me, saying, yes, that was correct. Okay, good. And, and then when I went into the jungle in South America, I wish I could speak that dialect, you know, of the Latin language, Espanol. I wish I could just bloom, just flow, as if I... I'm gl Julie is at work right now. She's in the hospital helping a mother give birth right now. But if she was here, I could just see her smiling at me. She's, you barely get English right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so anyway, but I wish I could speak these languages without ever having to learn them because I'm too lazy to take the time to really learn the languages. I even told Jada I was going to learn Espanol in one month. <laughs> no, not even close. <laughs> so on this day, when these people hear, these multitudes of people hear these Galileans and these people who are followers of this Jesus speaking in their native tongue, they were amazed. These men share the good news of who Jesus Christ was. 
he shared or they shared the fact that they were guilty of crucifying the Savior of the world. And when all was said and done, it was not, wow, you guys are speaking this language. It was, what do we do? We're convicted of our sins. What do we do? And so look again, Acts chapter 2. They're listening to this. They're hearing these words. They could be reminded of the Old Testament prophet Joel and what he was talking about, what would happen on this particular moment. When they heard this, verse 37, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? How do we remedy the situation? I mean, we're convicted that we are guilty of crucifying him, that we're guilty of denying this holy one. What do we do that we may be saved from our sins? Peter says to them in verse 38, repent in the name of Jesus Christ, the one that you crucified. Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Interesting in the Bible studies. You like to ask questions, right, in Bible studies. You know, you want to get all these things. Can you imagine all these people saying, wait a second. Would you please define repentance? And speaking of this baptism for the remission of sins, what does that all mean with baptism? And this Holy Spirit, if we were to accept this and we were going to get baptized, how would the Holy Spirit dwell in us? I mean, is it going to be like through the word? Or is it going to be more literal or something different? Can you imagine? Because they don't, that's not recorded in Scripture. That's what we've done 2,000 years later. We've asked all these kinds of questions. It simply was a matter of, I want you to repent. I want you to turn from what you've believed about Jesus. He is the Christ. Believe it. And I want you to be buried with him. That you may have your sins forgiven. When you do that... God's going to give you his gift, his spirit. You know what they did? They either accepted or rejected it. It was that simple. And we are told that in, on that day, 3,000 souls were baptized into Christ. You know what happened to 3,000 souls that day? They received the spirit of God. That's what happened. That's what the scripture says explicitly. Now, as the years have gone on, as the centuries have gone on, we've started going, well, how? And when we get into the how, we start coming up with our own answers rather than letting the Scriptures speak for itself. Amen. Repent, be baptized, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's God's gift. If you're not involved in this Bible study, Dennis is recording it in fact we're going to get one of those boom mics so that no one has to we tried doing the microphone set up where people would run around and do all this it was it just cuts up the bible class it just disrupts the the um, flow but he's going to do one of those where your answers your statements everything will be recorded so we can hear not just the word of the speaker in the bible class but everyone hopefully um i want you to attend this class so we can study these things together what does all this mean and even if we come to a conclusion where not everyone's going to still agree on it, we've been studying on it. And hopefully have conviction based upon this 
and not imposing our opinions into what the scripture reveals. Does that make sense? That's what our intention is. And so when we read these passages, that's what we want to do is absorb what is in fact being said and follow through. I mean, if God is giving us gifts, by all means, I want it. I mean, who doesn't want gifts? <laughs> and in this case, we have a gift. The Spirit of God. That's what Acts 2.38. We're going to talk about other passages later on about the gifts that the Holy Spirit can impart and give. That's separate than what we're talking about here in Acts chapter 2. That said, I want you to go to um, Ephesians chapter 1. Because in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul is writing to the brethren at Ephesus and is reminding them that our holy God, from before the foundation of the world, had this plan that he was going to save us or redeem us from our sins through this powerful reconciliation called the gospel. That the preaching of good news is that you are sinners, but I've come to save you from your sins through the precious blood of my son. That's kind of a nutshell of what Paul is saying about God from verses, well, verse 3 all the way through verse 11 following in Ephesians chapter 1. But I want you to look as you go further into the text here in Ephesians 1. Read verses 13 and 14 with me and see if we can get some understanding of what the apostle is saying here with regard to the Holy Spirit. In Him, in Christ, I believe, or God, however you want to say, but I believe he's talking about Christ. In Him, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth. Okay? So they heard the word of truth, and the result of hearing the word of truth is they trusted in Christ. They, trust, they put their trust in him, their belief in him. So in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Okay? So let's kind of do this in reverse. God promised his spirit. And people, when hearing the truth, that is, when hearing the gospel message about Jesus, that he is the Christ, he is the son of God, the one who says, listen, there's only one way to the Father, and that's through me, John 14, verse 6. When they believe and trusted in the word that they heard, the, the message of truth, Scripture says they were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Who is the guarantee? Not what is, but who is the guarantee of our inheritance? In other words, until our inheritance takes place, right? I mean, how many, seriously, how many of you actually have an inheritance that you haven't collected yet? I mean, you know, it's in the will. You're there. I mean, you don't have to tell me what it is. I've got, I've got two people. That's all? Shocking. <laughs> uh, thanks, Mom. <laughs> I feel like I'm looking over at Miss Evelyn. <laughs> Hey, the thing is, you have it. It's in the form of this will. And you've got it all documented. You've probably got it stamped and everything. It's sealed. In the same way, we're told that when we believed, after hearing the word of truth, we were given the Holy Spirit as a seal of our inheritance, of that which God has promised us. And the Holy Spirit was promised us until such time that we get to receive that, the fullness, if you will, of that inheritance. We know it's ours already, but we just haven't gotten it, so to speak. He is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of our, or of the purchased possession, to the praise of his glory. 
That's what we're talking about when we're talking about, I believe, in heaven. When the, the bride and the spirit say come, we get that inheritance, so to speak. It's ours right now. We just haven't received it in full, so to speak. It's, it's in seal and guarantee. That's what Paul is saying, I believe he's saying, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, about the Holy Spirit. God promised us the Holy Spirit. Peter preached and says, when you repent or are baptized, you'll receive the Holy Spirit. The gift from God is the Holy Spirit. What does all this mean then? When we read the scriptures, it's explicit. The Holy Spirit dwells in believers. He dwells in Christians. How he dwells? Brethren, I don't have the full answer to that question. But as Jimmy and I were talking, by faith, I believe he dwells in me. I believe he dwells in you. Do you believe he dwells in you? And if you say no, how do you explain scriptures that are explicit? He dwells in you. He dwells in you. He dwells in you. It says that, but it doesn't mean that. Have you ever heard that in Bible studies? <laughs> we, we talk to others, right, that would say, it says that, but it doesn't mean that. And we're like, no, it says what it means and means what it says. And we, we do go. But now when it comes to this passage, it says that, but I don't know. I mean, let's try and philosophize how he can dwell in us without him really dwelling in us. That's not what happened in the day of Pentecost. They accepted the word. They were baptized into Christ, and they received exactly what God promised them as preached by Peter. And so when we read these passages as was just read in Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 11, that's what we have. I want you to look at 1 John chapter 4. We had a Bible study in 1 John, um, I don't know, two, three quarters ago, something like that. Great Bible study. I love this, the study that we had. And one of the passages we looked at was right here. 1 John chapter 4, verse 12, and then verse 13. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us. Stop and digest those words. As Christians, if we love one another, we fulfill the royal law of Christ, if you will. He abides in us. He doesn't say how, just says that he does. And his love has been perfected in us. Because God is love, we're told. We, read that, we can read that in 1 John. By this we know that we abide in him. That is, by this we know that we abide in God. And God in us. Because God has given us of his spirit. Brethren, that's what it says explicitly in the text. How do you know that God abides in you? Well, because his spirit was given to us. Well, here's the funny thing. I didn't see the spirit coming to me. But you know one thing I never questioned before these questions about the Holy Spirit? I never questioned when I read God's word about my spirit dwelling in me. Have you ever questioned that about you? Your spirit. This tabernacle, this body, this fleshly body that we have, 
is being dwelt by your spirit that you have. We could read, and we're going to do it in another lesson, in Romans chapter 8 about verse 16. His spirit testifying with your spirit. It sounds like two different spirits going on, testifying the same thing, agreeing to the same thing. You've got a spirit. And according to Scripture, when God breathed forth life into individuals, he brought forth that spirit. Now, whether that's talking about the soul and spirit, I mean, these things get to be convoluted, a little ambiguous, hard to delineate between those two for some. But the fact of the matter is you go from non-living to living. And the same way that when you go from living physically but dead spiritually to being alive, the Spirit gives life. And so he says, here's how you can know that you are in me and I am in you because my Spirit is in you. John is saying because God's Spirit is in you. What does that look like? See, I believe that is an objective statement. And I believe there's objective evidences to show this to be the case. I'll give you an illustration. And again, this is when we get into next, um, next Sunday's Bible class, when we look at the Holy Spirit from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1. And we'll see it all the way through in the Old Testament as well. That when the Holy Spirit comes in, you know there's no way this is natural. What's taking place is supernatural. Can you imagine naturally the earth just taking form? Just like that. All of a sudden, non-living, living. Imagine when the Holy Spirit goes into an individual as recorded in Scripture. The individual says things no human being could ever say. In other words, like when Joseph spoke about the dream, remember from the baker, Right? And, and then afterwards with, um, with Pharaoh, he spoke things. And Pharaoh even said, the Spirit of God is in you. Who can say, who can know these things? I mean, it's different. Here's an illustration as well that maybe you'll get, and it's, I know it's a worldly illustration, but you'll get the point. Where's McKenna? Is McKenna with you, Allie? There's McKenna. McKenna's three years old. She does jujitsu. She's got a good arm bar for a three-year-old. Guarantee you, we all, in all my arrogance, I guarantee you I could beat McKenna. <laughs> I've taken jujitsu longer than she has. <laughs> Would you be surprised if I could beat her? Would you be surprised if she could beat me? Please say yes. <laughs> Seriously. I would be shocked for the sake of illustration. If, if the Holy Spirit were to come in her, I wouldn't be shocked. There's a distinction there that says there's a supernatural at work within these individuals. That's why when you talk about Samson doing what he does, it's not because his hair. His hair has no power. The Spirit of God worked mightily in him. The Spirit of God explicitly says came upon him. Another way of saying being filled or overtaken by the Spirit, not in the same way of, of the guarantee that we have, but when the Spirit is involved in a person's life, there's something different about that individual. And that is why he says when you love one another, it's a divine type love that you have for one another. That's one of the manifestations of the Spirit. 
And that's why God's spirit can bear witness with our spirit, Romans chapter 8, verse 16. And again, we'll look at this later on in our Bible study, that we are children of God. So what then does this look like? I believe an objective spirit that dwells in you has an objective outpouring of the spirit through you. And this is where we see conversion. This is where we see repentance in the life of believers. And it is divinely evident in the life of a believer. This is my strong conviction based upon what we read in Scripture. I wonder what you think would be that. Is it speaking in tongues? Is it prophesying? Because I believe those were outward signs that people had the Holy Spirit. But I, I'm not seeing people speaking in tongues today, not genuinely. I've personally never... Anyone here willing to say, I actually heard someone legitimately speaking different languages that they've never learned? No one here. I would even go one step further. There was a, a lady that I had Bible studies with in Georgia that honestly believed that that happens. And she was wheelchair-bound because of an accident. She was in a nursing home in her late 40s, early 50s. Nursing home at such a young age. But she went to this church because this faith healer was coming in, that he had the Holy Spirit, and he was able to heal people. I mean... If someone's going to heal someone miraculously, I want to go. In fact, I'd video record the thing so it makes the 6 o'clock news. She goes with 100% conviction that would happen to her. I forgot her name now. I wish I could remember her name. Maybe Julie remember. She got up in that service out of her wheelchair that she'd been in for many years by now. Immediately fell and broke her hip. But that would not stop her because she was so convinced she got up a second time and broke her other hip. She was devastated. And I told her, again, I forgot her name. I, I said, I hate saying that I warned you. And the last thing I want to do is deny what God can do to save anyone and heal anyone. But I've never seen anyone miraculously healed like I see and read in scripture today I just haven't I haven't seen it I have heard of events and I've known of events where things have happened and I believe by the way I, I stand right here telling you right now I believe if God wants to heal someone from cancer boom done I believe it with all my heart I believe he can providentially work through all kinds of things supernaturally work through but we don't see it in the miraculous way that we see in scripture that's what I'm saying there's a distinction but I believe it. And this is why, and even David said it in the Lord's Supper talk. Why pray to God if we don't ask for his intervention otherwise? Or Ron said it, if not. Why believe it? Why pray to God and ask for intervention if he's not going to intervene? Or if we don't believe he's not going to intervene? We're just wasting our, our vain breath, if you will, if that's the case. And so I believe there's objective evidence. And I want you to look at some of these evidences. We're told, and this is again another passage that we use, I believe, and focus in on one part. It's in a whole clause, and we take the first half of this statement and not the rest of it. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. How many of you know that passage? Okay, lots of you know that passage. Do you know what verse 13 says? Most of you, I would say, don't know what verse 13 says, and it's right after verse 12. 
For it is God who is at work in you to do his will. It is God at work in you. Well, how is God at work in you, brethren? If, if all we have to do, if Christianity was all about, okay, now I'm a child of God, pull, I don't know how the statement goes, something about the bootstraps, something. Anyway, you do it. I wish I knew these things. <laughs> if Christianity was just about sheer will, we would not need the Holy Spirit. If Christianity were simply a matter of you read God's word and you do it, we would not even need a savior. But how many of us need God after having become a child of God? How many of us cry out to him because we're weak because of the flesh? How many of us languish in our prayers and don't know how to pray to our God at times? Because the situation is beyond our comprehension. One of those paradoxes that I remember the first time I, I felt it so heavy on me. When, when in Georgia, there were so many wonderful things that were going on. I was on cloud nine with the work that was going on in Georgia. And at the very same time, there were things that were going on that just broke my heart. How is that possible? How do you pray when you're happy as happy can be, and sad as sad can be. How, how, I don't know how to pray in moments like that. My body just torn. My mind and my heart is torn this way. And so we're told in Philippians 2 verse 12, work out your salvation for God is at work in you. Well, guess what? We were told that when we repent and be baptized, we would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And when we get into this, the work of the Holy Spirit, how he convicts us, how he comforts us. This is what Miss Patricia was talking about in our Bible class. How he leads us and guides us. Because God is at work in you. How? I don't know. But he does it. He convicts me of sin. He rebukes me. He leads me if I'm willing to follow him. I still have free will. I can choose not to follow what the Spirit leads. Or I can let God do his perfect work in me, as Scripture says. We also bear fruit of the Spirit. This is no problem for us to talk about, right? The fruit of the Holy Spirit. We have no problem. But that is objective manifestations of those who've turned to the Lord. It really is, brethren. If you want to see fruit that the Spirit of God is working in and through your life, you'll, you'll see the manifestation of His Spirit. I use my life example because it is a great example, not from a um, boasting standpoint, please, no. But from a realistic, this happened to me. I'm not saying I was without sin after becoming a Christian, but I'm telling you, on cloud nine, gung-ho for the Lord... And within two, three months, I mean, well, let me put it this way. Within day one, within 24 hours, I was preaching the gospel. I didn't know anything about the Lord except Jesus is the Christ. Believe in him. And I was baptized. You get baptized too. That's how I presented it, brethren. Beyond that, I knew nothing. But that's what I proclaimed. And I studied every single day. How do you study after working 16 and 17 hours on your feet, traveling at least 10 miles a day 
How do you do that, brethren? At 1 o'clock in the morning. Because you get home at 10 or 11 at night. You eat dinner. You call your business stats, your sales stats in. You take a shower. And then you get down and you study the word of God. Until 1 in the morning. Or until you fall asleep. And then you get up at 5.30 again. Start your next day of 16, 17 hour day. How do you do that six days a week? Week after week for 12 weeks. God is at work in this young believer. I honestly believe that with all my heart, brethren. How does God take this person who knew nothing who Jesus Christ was one morning, the next morning he believes in Christ and is serving Christ and no longer desires the things of the flesh? That doesn't mean I didn't do things of the flesh from time to time, but my life was set on him. You got to see an arrogant person beginning the process of learning how to live for him. Where I would tease people for trying to come to my door and like when I was in college, knock on the door, talk to me about the Lord. And I would in my heart laugh at him. Now I'm grateful that people want to share God's word. I'm grateful. I may not agree with everything that person is sharing with me, but guess what? You all don't agree with what I preach in the pulpit. telling you I'm grateful when people want to talk about the Lord and want to share his word and want to draw closer to him how do I respond do I respond with arrogance I know more than you I belong to the right church I got all the right answers let me do this other thing so it's really really good now and I'm going to tell you like it is or do I come across with genuine love for that person's soul and not to be the winner of a debate? Do I come across with gentleness? Do I come across with everything that is divinely shown as fruit of God's spirit? That's an objective way that you can see. Now some might say, hey Mitch, I know of atheists who are loving and kind and do they believe in God? Did they receive him because they repented and turned to him and were washed in his blood? If so, they have gifts that God has shown to us, but those gifts are of their sheer will. But when you can take someone who is a worldly person, take a murderer take a drug addict, take someone who is all about their life and now give it to God? You tell me who's working in them. And I'll tell you it's God working in them. Because that's what the scripture says. Who is working in them. That's a manifestation of God's spirit. How all that works, I don't know. But it is a clear and evident change. Brethren, the last thing, and I mean this sincerely, the last thing that we want is to get the most eloquent speakers just because it's easy to listen to. Well, you know what's easy then to, to see how a church would be built up, but is it built upon the word of God or is it built upon because some speaker is so good to listen to? I mean, where's your glory, in the speaker or in God? 
Where's your praise? In the speakers of Bible classes? In the classrooms? Among elders and deacons? Is it among those things? Because if that's the case, then all we have to do is just get the, the best. Just get the best of whatever. Now, getting the best, nothing wrong with it, by the way. That's not my point. The point is, where's your glory? How can you see God at work? But when you take people that have no, nothing to do with God, and now you're seeing that they have everything to do with God, what a great testimony as they speak the word of God. And what does it say to you about, when well, I'm looking at David, generation upon generation upon generation that God is working in his family? How blessed that you can see God holding a family together because they live by faith. They believe on him, and they continue to grow in him. All of these show forth a life of someone who belongs to God and his outpouring. There's so many more things that could be dealt with. This is just scratching the surface. But I want you to know, that's who we're talking about, spirit-filled individuals. And rather than being scared about saying we're spirit-filled, it is explicitly in Scripture. And if we talk about speaking where the Bible speaks, brethren, guess what? The Bible speaks that the Spirit dwells in you. So don't grieve him. If the Spirit of God dwells in you, brethren, this is the last slide. If the Spirit of God dwells in you, don't deny him. You may not know how, and I may not know how, and maybe after this whole Bible study is over, we may still not know how. I believe it with all my heart, as should you. And Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30 of this passage, do not grieve the Holy Spirit, is about those who do not love the way they ought to love. Therefore, not living as they ought to live. If you belong to Christ, His Spirit is in you. And if His Spirit is in you, do not grieve Him with your words. Do not grieve Him with dissensions. Do not grieve him with hatred. Because when you do, you grieve the Spirit of God who is in you. That's what Ephesians 4 verse 30 is saying. I hope that when all is said and done, we have a comfort. And I don't know if that's going to take place after 13 weeks, by the way. And it's not, I don't see it happening to every single person. But I hope that that's the direction that we are in as individuals. That we can have a comfort about talking about the Holy Spirit. Truth has nothing to hide. Amen. And if someone talks about having the Spirit of God, you can know by faith that he does in a believer. Because that person lives by faith. Received the Word of God and the gospel message that is. And therefore can have the Holy Spirit. Because he's promised to everyone that we call upon his name. Now in closing, I want to share this. If you're not a Christian, you don't have the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian, you do have the Holy Spirit. That's just a fact. If you're not a Christian, God wants you to believe that Jesus Christ is his son and our savior. He came to die for you. And he's promised you his spirit. That you may have his spirit until that day where we become face to face with our God.
where we can live eternally with immortality face to face with him. That's called an invitation. (laughs) You're invited into his kingdom that you may be saved from your sins, but you will never be saved from your sins if you do not recognize that you are lost in them. And unless you turn to our Lord, you are lost in your sins. You will die in your sins. And you will not have the precious promises that he has offered, let alone the gift that he's giving to those who call upon him. But if you want to be buried with him, buried with Christ that is, because you believe and are repenting, turning away from the way you want to live and turning to the way you give your life to him, he's guaranteed you his spirit. That sounds like good news as far as I'm concerned. You're welcome to it. I pray that you'll accept it if you haven't done so already. Brethren, for the rest of us here, I hope that this lesson gives you an opportunity to go back, read your scriptures, study them, and see what is explicitly stated about being spirit-filled. Because that's what the Word of God says. And I pray that you'll accept it by faith. Here's an opportunity for you to come now. We'll pray for you if you need. But now it's together we stand and sing the song of invitation.